The Giant Magellan Telescope is, is what I would call a general purpose telescope, which means that it's going to be able to advance the frontiers of astronomy and basically uh, you know, all, all of the front lines of, of astronomy and astrophysics. There, there are no larger telescopes that have been built. Uh, the largest telescope built to date, um, depending on how you want to count size, would be the Grand Telescopio Canarias in the Canary, Canary Islands, which is just over 10 meters in aperture. Yes, our, our telescope is, uh, it weighs less than a fully fueled Saturn V rocket, but, but it is a massive, uh, massive machine. That was James Fanson, the project manager of the Giant Magellan Telescope. The GMT is one of the largest ground-based telescopes being built and is currently being constructed at the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile. It will consist of six off-axis 8.4-meter mirror segments that, when taken together, will combine to form a primary mirror diameter of 24 and a half meters. This telescope will have the resolving power that's 10 times greater than the Hubble Space Telescope, and it is one of several large-scale ground-based telescopes being built around the world. So, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Well, all right. So welcome, James Fanson. He is the he is the project manager of the Giant Magellan Telescope that is being built right now in, I believe it's in uh, Chile, right? That's right. We're building at uh, Las Campanas in Chile at the very southern end of the Atacama Desert. Great. And uh, joining me also, as always, is Dustin. You out there, Dustin? I am. We are talking about big telescopes today. <laughs> <laughs> giant as it were yeah yeah exactly <laughs> is this james is this the largest telescope ever built is there any are there any that are larger than this? there there are no larger telescopes that have been built uh, the largest telescope built to date um, depending on how you want to count size would be the grand telescopio canarias and the canary canary islands which is just over 10 meters in aperture yeah it's this is i mean so much i was looking at the the weight specification online of this thing and it's like four million pounds this telescope weighs. Yes, our, our telescope is, uh, you know, is mass is about uh, 2,100, 2,200 tons. So um, it, it weighs less than a fully fueled Saturn V rocket, but, but it is a massive, uh, massive machine. This kind of thing must require, require a lot of collaboration from a lot of different people. Tell us a little bit about who's involved. So you're right. The, the Giant Magellan Telescope is a collaboration of about a dozen scientific institutions, universities and, and scientific institutions. Most of them are in the uh, United States, but we have uh, uh, international partners as well. <clears throat> so, um, you know, it ranges from uh, from uh, state universities, private universities, uh, uh, research institutions. Uh, so we have uh, we have quite a uh, quite a consortium. This is a segmented telescope, as most of these giant ground-based telescopes end up being. They're broken up into segments. What will be the, let's see, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven different segments uh, that's going to be built in the end. How big is the total diameter or collecting area going to be of this thing? The Giant Magellan Telescope aperture is 25.4 meters, and it uh, it's a doubly <laughs> segmented optical system. So we have both a segmented primary mirror 
and a segmented secondary mirror. Uh, so each are uh, composed of seven individual segments. The primary mirror segments are 8.4 meters in diameter, and the secondary mirror segments are a little over one meter. So this thing is, what, 85 feet across the aperture? 85 feet across, roughly? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I don't think uh, generally in imperial units, but that sounds about right. Well, I mean, think about it. That, that's like, uh, you know, trying to, to reference something. I mean, that's like from home plate to first base almost is how wide this thing is. You know, you look at a baseball field, like that's, that's how wide these mirrors are. And each mirror, right, it says weighs 33,000 pounds. So the diameter of one mirror then is roughly 28 feet, 8.4 meters. That's right. So we have a couple of our uh, partner institutions have actually painted the uh, aperture on their uh, parking lots to full scale. Uh, so they've painted out seven circles uh, of the right diameter and the right arrangement. And so when you walk around on top of that, of that, you get a sense for the for the huge scale of this telescope. It's, in fact, if you go onto Google... Oh, yeah. You can see the satellite pictures. You can see it from space. Why are these primaries now that we're seeing in a lot of telescopes? I mean, the 30-meter <clears throat> telescope is being built with uh, with segments. And, of course, the James Webb Space Telescope has got hexagonal segments that are going to be on it. And we kind of know that one of the reasons that that is being segmented is so as it can, it can be folded up into the rocket. But why are these ground-based telescopes being built using a whole lot of smaller mirrors in an array that makes one big giant mirror. What's the advantage in that? Well, of course, uh, when you're observing the heavens, you want, uh, generally speaking, the largest telescope that your uh, technology will support and that your budget can afford. And the limit on the size of individual mirrors that you can manufacture is about 8.4 meters. So our mirror segments are the largest mirrors in the world. When you get much larger than that size, then you have issues about how do you transport them down the road or you know how do you get them up the mountain. So if you want larger telescopes, uh, you're really forced into segmenting uh, the primary aperture into various pieces. So whether you go with large segments as we are, or you go with smaller segments like uh, the Keck telescopes pioneered and that uh, TMT and the European Extremely Large Telescope are using, or James Webb, uh, depends on the uh, technological approach that you want to take. But segmentation is really necessary if you want to make a really large telescope. So this is approaching the limits of what can be done with uh, just pieces of glass, right? Is that what you're, is that what you're saying? This 8.4 meter diameter is about the limit that we can make right now. That's the limit of the uh, uh, Richard F. Karras Mirror Lab, which is where our mirrors are manufactured. And they make the largest mirrors in the world. In, in principle, I suppose you could conceive of, of trying to cast a larger mirror, but um, you know the the mirrors you know when they're when they're finished, the primary mirrors you know they, they weigh about seventeen tons, and uh, you know it, it there there comes a practical point where it doesn't make sense to you know try to cast a twenty five meter diameter mirror, so at some point you're going to need to break it into into sub apertures are into pieces. I would invite anybody who's listening to this podcast to go to the website. It's gmto.org. And on there, if you click on the overview uh, of the telescope, you'll see a picture of one of the things they're doing to make these mirrors. And I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. You've got these large, huge discs, presumably 8.4 meters in diameter, uh, filled with like broken, looks like broken glass or glass shards. Uh, it, 
Can you describe a little bit about the process of, of how you're making these mirrors? Sure. The, the process of making these mirrors is really fascinating. And the challenge with making, uh, with making mirrors is how do you cast a piece of glass that is going to remain stable and, and not fracture when it's being annealed and not generate cracks and bubbles and so on? Uh, this was a real challenge when uh, the Palomar 200 telescope was a 200 inch telescope was being made in the uh, in the 40s. Getting a getting a, a mirror cast that size, which today would seem small at five meters. So the process that they use is to uh, uh, select a material which is much like Pyrex. It's a low expansion glass. It's called borosilicate glass. The specific material that that they use at the mirror lab is E6 borosilicate. And it's supplied by a Japanese uh, company uh, named Ohara. And this glass is made in small batches uh, by hand uh, in clay pots in, in Japan. Uh, it's then broken into pieces that are, you know, basically you can hold in your, in your hand. Uh, they're carefully inspected and, you know, defective chunks of glass are set aside. And then they then arrive at the mirror lab uh, where they are re-inspected, uh, and then uh, they are placed by hand uh, into a gigantic mold, uh, which is on a uh, turntable so that it can spin. Um, and the mold is surrounded by a furnace, and the whole furnace spins. Uh, and so what they do is they place all these pieces of glass, you know, uh, something close to 20 tons of of this glass. Uh, they put the lid by on hand, the furnace. You said. <laughs> it's, it's all placed by hand. In fact, if you go to our webpage, you can see photographs of, uh, of the technicians placing, <laughs> placing the glass by hand. And I then the furnace that. is yeah. heated up and spun, uh, and it reaches a temperature of about 1160 degrees C. And then uh, the glass begins to melt and it flows into the mold, which which creates the honeycomb pattern to lightweight the, the glass mirror. Uh, and then it's slowly annealed over about three months' time while the furnace is still spinning. And then uh, out comes this beautiful 8.4-meter um, mirror. It's really an astonishing process to watch. Of course, it has to be ground and polished into final shape, but you, you have the mirror blank at the end of that. And that took how many months, I'm sorry, to get that, uh, get it, that far? It, it takes about three months overall. Uh, most of that okay. time, it's being very slowly cooled to anneal the glass so that it is as stress-free as possible when it reaches room temperature. Do you do them all one at a time, or can you like do several of them at once at the lab? They are uh, cast one at a time. There's only one casting furnace. It takes up a large part of the space. By the way, this is all being done underneath the football stadium at the University of Arizona. Uh, so they have these cavernous areas. Oh, that's where the furnace is. The, the whole mirror lab, the polishing machines, the grinding machines, the furnace, everything is underneath the football stadium. Um, <laughs> and we, Talk about hot seats. So, so we currently <laughs> Sorry, have... Sorry, I had to do it. I, I apologize. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. My, my sense of humor is legendary. Let's just say <laughs> that now. Is that the word? <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very important to maintain a sense of humor when, uh, no matter what you do. But uh, we currently have... Um, uh, mirrors of uh, uh, three, four, and five being processed in the mirror lab. And we had a fourth mirror uh, in the mirror lab that uh, was just recently completed and was put in a container and is now off site uh, in storage. Um, and when you have four mirrors that are being processed uh, simultaneously, it pretty much fills up all the space in the mirror lab. Uh, so we cast them one at a time and we process them and uh, we actually have so many mirrors in the mirror lab, we built a little um, 
uh, stacking piece of ground support equipment so we can stack blanks up because uh, we're running out of space in the mirror lab. How many have you gotten done so far? Uh, two are completely finished, and they're in storage in uh, Tucson, waiting their uh, journey to Chile. And uh, three are in process in the mirror lab, and we will cast uh, the next mirror next year. So we will cast uh, mirror segment six uh, in 2020, and we plan to cast mirror segment seven, which would be the final mirror needed for the telescope uh, in 2021. The, just the the effort to transport, just looking at the scale of this in these photos, I mean, how can this gigantic piece of glass be moved all the way from Arizona to Chile without anything going wrong? I mean, at the point it leaves there, it's perfect. That just seems like such a haul. It's, it's something, of course, that, that you have to take seriously and, and handle carefully. Uh, but an 8.4 meter mirror or one close to 8.4 meters was just recently delivered. Uh, to Chile, and that's for the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. That mirror was also manufactured at the uh, Keras Lab and was transported, um, I believe, out of the port of Houston on a special purpose uh, transport ship uh, through the Panama Canal uh, down to Coquimbo, uh, which is uh, a port, uh, the closest port to the Gemini and uh, LSST site. And then it uh, is trucked uh, in an extra-wide load uh, uh, air ride uh, van uh, across the, the freeway highway system and then up the mountain. So it's, um, it's, it's transported in a conventional way. It just has to be done very carefully. That's amazing. Uh, so I'm looking at the website now, and you guys have a webcam uh, that's pointing to the construction site in Chile. And th it looks like you've only just gotten underway on construction. There doesn't look to be a lot there. Uh, what's the construction timeline and when are you hoping to start taking observations? Well, that, that's a good question. We've actually been um, doing construction for quite a while, um, starting with leveling the mountain. And interestingly, we actually leveled the mountain with a, a flat area that is large enough for two um, telescopes the size of the GMT. Uh, so we're building uh, the first telescope on one end of the uh, of the mesa. What we've constructed so far are uh, the residence buildings for the construction crew and for our staff. And we have a cafeteria and a recreation facility there. Uh, we've put in all the electrical and uh, are completing now the water infrastructure. And then at the very uh, top of the mountain, uh, we have finished the uh, what we call the hard rock excavation for the foundations for the telescope uh, enclosure, for the telescope pier, uh, and for some of the uh, support infrastructure. And once we're finished with that, the next step will be to pour concrete foundations. So the uh, the uh, schedule for the uh, observatory is in part uh, dependent upon how the funding and finance is arranged, but uh, we expect to be uh, up and running in the 2028-2029 uh, timeframe. So you, you're not this is not completely funded then. You're still looking for money. Yes. So we do not have all of the funds that are necessary to complete the observatory. So fundraising is a continuous activity. Uh, and I think that's true for the other telescope projects probably as well. Oh, is that also true for, uh, L well, LSST is getting ready to get get uh, going, I think. So they're a bit, a past a lot of the construction funding, at least. I guess they are ready to start first light. When is it? Next year, uh, I believe, in spring of next year. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and 
Yeah. And then uh, this is an ongoing project. This isn't like something where, I don't know, in the United States, somebody like uh, the National Science Foundation would say, yeah, go ahead and build this thing. We got you covered. And and uh, then you end up doing reviews and making sure everybody's on track and everything else. This is a completely different model for getting things paid for, isn't it? Well, there's, there's actually a tradition uh, in the United States for the world's largest telescopes to be uh, privately funded. And uh, this was true of, of uh, the 100-inch telescope that Hubble used, Emma Wilson, that was funded by the Carnegie, by Andrew Carnegie. Uh, the Palomar telescope, the 200-inch, uh, was funded by the Rockefeller uh, Foundation. So it, it's not unusual for large telescopes and optical telescopes to be privately funded. But when you get to this scale, uh, that's quite an undertaking uh, to uh, privately fund it. So interestingly, uh, there's been a, um, an initiative in the last year or so that is coming out of the um, NSF's Optical and Infrared Research Laboratory, and they are um, interested in the possibility of the U.S. government becoming partners in both of the Northern and Southern Hemisphere, TMT and GMT, that would provide access to the uh, U.S. astronomy community at large. And so uh, there are, uh, you know, there are discussions going on and there are scientific studies being done. So it's it's conceivable that uh, U.S. government could become involved in the GMT at some point. What is the final cost projected to be for this telescope? Well, this telescope is, uh, you know, it's it's at the moment it's it's on the shy side of uh, $2 billion, but it's a large and expensive machine. There's no question about it. And why go so big? I mean, we talk all the time on, on here about the problems with atmosphere and the reason that a lot of telescopes end up in space, but why go so big from the ground? Yes. Uh, so I, I spent most of my career actually building telescopes that go into space. But when you put a telescope in space, you have the advantage of being above the atmosphere, but you have the disadvantage of having to fit onto what a rocket can put into orbit. Uh, and of course, just based on the physics of light, the, um, the setting the atmosphere aside for a moment, the larger the telescope, the higher the uh, spatial resolution that you can uh, uh, image on the sky. And uh, in, in the case of doing uh, science that is involved you know, on point like objects, stars or distant galaxies or so on, the uh, the benefit actually scales with the diameter of the aperture to the fourth power because you're talking about the point source sensitivity or, or the ratio of the collecting area, the light collecting area of the telescope, which goes as the diameter squared divided by the image size, which is inversely proportional. The area of the image is inversely proportional to the square of the diameter. So you actually get huge factors of, of increased uh, sensitivity and power when you increase the size of a telescope. So this is why everybody is always throughout history since Galileo been interested in building the largest telescope they possibly can. So if you want to get to a really large telescope, um, you know, the, the limitation of launch vehicles means that, that there's just a limit to what you can put in space. And so the really large telescopes are on the ground. Uh, and uh, with the advent of adaptive optics technology, uh, the ability to measure the wavefront distortion through the atmosphere and then in real time to correct that distortion with adaptive optics, we can actually recover, um, at least over small fields of view, you can, uh, you can recover the resolution of a telescope um, 
as if it were above the atmosphere. And so they're that good then. Adaptive optics have gotten that good. How, how exactly do adaptive optics work? The simple way to think about adaptive optics is that you look through the telescope at a star and you measure the wavefront as it's arriving at the focal point of your telescope. And that wavefront is distorted by the atmosphere and you can measure in real time, you can measure what that distortion is. And then if you place a, what we call a deformable mirror, you can think of a mirror being a you know, very thin um, sheet of glass, for example, with a lot of actuators on it that you can command, and you can bend that mirror into whatever shape you want. If you place that mirror at what's called a, uh, uh, at a location where you're close to the pupil of the telescope, then you can bend that mirror in real time, millisecond by millisecond, to correct the distortion that's being introduced by the atmosphere so that when the light reflects off of this deformable mirror, it arrives at the focal plane undistorted. So you've essentially removed the atmosphere. Uh, and this technology has advanced tremendously over the last uh, several decades. We have built in adaptive optics into our telescope design uh, by making our segmented secondary mirror uh, a series of seven uh, deformable mirrors. So there's one deformable mirror that corresponds to each of the primary mirrors, mirror segments. And uh, we run those deformable mirrors at two kilohertz bandwidth and, uh, and correct the atmospheric distortion. So each of these deformable mirrors has about... 675 actuators on the back of it. So across all seven of them, there are, there are almost 5,000 actuators that are being driven at kilohertz uh, frequency to uh, correct the atmospheric distortion. That is absolutely incredible to, to be able to maintain that <laughs> yeah. kind of resolution. Cause that was always my question with adaptive optics was like, I understand that you can reshape the mirror in, you know, real time to match, you know, what you're seeing in, in your uh, point source. But I didn't think you could shape it to that level of, you know, I mean, it has to be to a nearly microscopic level right? To get to maintain the resolution that that scope is capable of. That's right. You make very fine adjustments. You know, we're talking about very small fractions of the wavelength of light to maintain the, uh, the uh, what's called diffraction-limited performance of the optical system. Now, I have to say that this works better at longer wavelengths than at shorter wavelengths because the atmosphere, uh, when you get to shorter and shorter uh, wavelengths, the distortion uh, takes on a finer and finer uh, pattern. And you you need to uh, because you're working at shorter wavelengths, you need to do more uh, correction uh, at fine spatial frequencies. But by the time we get out, you know, close to a micron, uh, we can do very effective um, adaptive optics. And is that what you're operating at in the one micron range, roughly infrared? So the telescope is designed to operate from about a third of a micron out to 25 microns. So it's a very broad um, 25 microns. Wow, <laughs> optical optical and infrared telescope. By, by the time you get too far out in the infrared uh, into what's called the thermal infrared, now you have to deal with the fact that your telescope is warm because you're on the surface of the earth uh, rather than in space where you can cool things down quite a bit. And we have many different observing modes in the telescope depending on what kind of a science observation we're trying to make. So um, we have observing modes that don't require adaptive optics um, and we have observing modes that uh, make use of the adaptive optics. We even have an observing mode that we call ground layer adaptive optics, where we recognize that much of the distortion from the atmosphere occurs in the first 100 to 200 meters 
of air above the ground. And that's because the ground is what gets warmed up in the daytime. And, and that's where a lot of the temperature variation occurs in the atmosphere. And the advantage of correcting for the ground layer is that it's not very high above the telescope. And so if you can correct what's going on in the air close to the telescope, you can correct a very wide field of view for the telescope. So you can, you know, you can get very significant improvements like 25 or 30% improvement in resolution over a very wide field of view. So um, more bang our for your buck, secondary right? Secondary <laughs> mirrors, yeah, you get you just get better resolution and you know uh, closer to the diffraction limit. And so we have actually designed our telescope so that our secondary mirrors, these are the deformable mirrors, are conjugate to about uh, you know about 150 meters above the ground or so where the ground layer is occurring. Well, I am glad you brought up uh, what the observing modes of this scope because I'd like to ask you what you're hoping to see with this. Now, I've been in this field for a while, and I've watched a lot of uh, observatories uh, be, get planned, and now they're starting to get built. I mean, the LSST, the Large, the large Sky Synoptic Telescope, is hoping to, to image the entire sky uh, two or three times a week. And we've got the VLT being operated by ESO, uh, which is currently going on right now. Then there's things like the 30-meter telescope, the your telescope. There's also the extremely large telescope that's planning on being built. So we've got some really big ground-based telescopes hitting the pipeline. And I'd like to learn about some of the science that's driving all this. What are you hoping to see? What, what questions are you hoping to answer with the Giant Magellan Telescope? Well, that's an excellent question. The Giant Magellan Telescope is, is what I would call a general purpose telescope, which means that it's going to be able to advance the frontiers of astronomy and basically uh, you know, all, uh, all, all of the front lines of, of astronomy and astrophysics. A telescope like the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, on the other hand, has a, a more specific purpose. So it is uh, the LSST is a change detection machine. So it's going to scan the sky and identify anything that's changing in the sky. And so, the, you know, the, it'll spit out every night, you know, thousands and thousands of objects that have changed uh, in position or changed in brightness or changed in color. So for GMT, and this is true also for the other two so-called extremely large telescopes, a 30-meter telescope and the European extremely large telescope. Right, um, ELT, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, or I, I think recently they've just changed their name to ELT. Oh, did but they? Okay. These machines um, will have uh, a suite of instrumentation on them that will enable imaging, but mainly spectroscopy from the visible into the infrared to tackle a very wide range of scientific topics. So, for example, exoplanets is a is a hot topic in astronomy and astrophysics today. We'd like to understand where the nearest habitable zone planets are, you know, small rocky planets in particular that are in the habitable zone. And then we'd like to begin to characterize the atmospheres of these planets to determine whether there are any signs of disequilibrium gases in the atmosphere that might suggest that there is life on the planet, for example. And in the case of GMT will be in the Southern Hemisphere, so we'll be able to look at exoplanet targets in the Southern Hemisphere, including the relatively recently discovered uh, Proxima Centauri b, which is a, uh, you know, a, a small rocky world orbiting in the habitable zone of an, of an M-dwarf star. And we will actually have the resolution to separate the light of Proxima Centauri b uh, in principle and, uh, and probe the atmosphere of that exoplanet. 
So exoplanets is one area that is, is, you know, is just really ripe for discovery with a larger telescope. We're going to be doing studies of black holes. We're going to be extending the reach to, to study uh, supermassive black holes and host galaxies across cosmic time. Uh, we'll be doing higher resolution studies of the, of the Milky Way's central black hole. It will allow us to do some tests of uh, fundamental aspects of gravity. Uh, we're going to be searching for uh, sort of the missing intermediate mass black holes that we believe exist, uh, but that we haven't really observed. The capability of GMT will, will enable those kinds of studies to, to go forward effectively. We want to understand galaxy evolution. Particularly, we like to understand how galaxies are putting themselves together around this point in cosmic history called cosmic noon which is like between a redshift of one and three, where the galaxy formation rate of the universe... I'm sorry, what did you say? It's called... What was that? It's cosmic co what? Cosmic noon. N-O-O-N? Uh, N-O-O-N. So this, this is the point in the history of the formation of the universe where galaxy formation seems to have peaked. So galaxies started to assemble oh. themselves early, you know, after, sometime after the Big Bang. And when you look at the, at the, uh, at the, you know, the, the current state of the galaxy right nearby the milky way galaxy formation has has fallen off so there's there's a period in cosmic history uh, when you look back you know, of course you know when you look back in distance of the universe you're looking back in time because of the finite speed of light so if you look back to redshifts between one and three you know you're looking back about 75 or 80 percent of the of the way back to the big bang you discover that that star formation and galaxy formation was at its peak so that's that's called cosmic noon, but those galaxies I've never are heard that term. those galaxies are are far away and they're hard to to image. And so with a bigger telescope, you can actually now understand the structure of these galaxies. You know how the how the galaxies are being formed. Galaxies in the distant past tend to look quite different than galaxies in the in the you know the the later stage of the universe, like where we live now. Wow. That, I had never heard that term before. So that's, that's really interesting. It also explains your wavelength range because you, you're, you're getting out into the infrared, which of course, the further away a galaxy is, the more red shifted into that wavelength these galaxies are. So you need these wavelengths to be able to see them at all. So that's really interesting. Will there be any overlap? Maybe not overlap, but complementary observations with telescopes like ALMA. You said that you were going to look at the black hole at the center of our galaxy, which means that you'll be able to pierce through the gas and dust that's in between us and the center of the galaxy using infrared late wavelengths. Will you be able to use, will this build on some of the things that ALMA has shown us or help me understand a little bit about how that will help what we our current understanding at these wavelengths. Well, uh, uh, let me first say I'm not an I'm not an astronomer. I'm not a scientist. I'm an engineer by background, but um, ah, okay. but, I, but I have been an amateur <laughs> astronomer since I was a small boy. Um, well, you got the right group here. <laughs> so um, the way science is done is that uh, scientists are trying to understand the phenomena that are occurring in the universe. They're trying to understand the physics and, and the context uh, for how the universe functions. And to understand those processes, <clears throat> you need to take measurements that range from gamma ray and X-ray observations. We have gamma ray and X-ray telescopes in space uh, through the visible and into the infrared, into the radio range. And now that we're into the era of multi-messenger astronomy, we actually are getting data from gravity waves with, with the LIGO Gravity Wave Observatory. 
Uh, we're getting you know, cosmic ray and, and neutrino measurements that reveal uh, processes in the universe. So scientists collect whatever types of measurements they need to understand the physical processes to piece together how the universe works. So the answer to your question is all of these observatories are complementary. They, they all make measurements of different aspects of the light or the, or the other signals that are coming from the heavens. Uh, and by putting these various pieces of the puzzle together, you can understand the picture of how the universe works. Well, that's uh, that's really interesting because I think you're right. I don't think anybody wants to build too many telescopes that all do the same thing. So yeah, they, I guess they would try and use the science to decide what they're going to get built and what can they see versus what they can't see right now and try to build the necessary telescopes that they need. One thing I wanted to get your opinion on, though, was... <laughs> This didn't used to be a thing, but I guess it's a thing now uh, with what's happened to the 30-meter telescope in Hawaii. Uh, locations of where these things are getting built are pretty well-selected, and they're actually quite precious to astronomers because there aren't a lot of places on the planet Earth where we can build a telescope to, that does what we need to do. And, of course, there's been a controversy recently with uh, the culture of, uh, the cultural component in Hawaii, the, the, the native Hawaiians, resisting another telescope being built on Mauna Kea. So I think now the latest is that that is not being built on Mauna Kea, but it will instead be built on the Canary Islands and on Tenerife. What's it like? You're building this in Chile. What is Chile like? And what are the Andes where you're currently building like as a site? And also, are there any cultural aspects that you need to be aware of when you're building facilities like this? Well, I mentioned earlier, we talked a bit about the adaptive optics technology that helps us uh, correct for atmospheric distortion. That's not a perfect technology, and we can never perfectly remove the atmosphere. Uh, and so it's much easier to do correction of the atmospheric distortion if you're in a place where the atmosphere is well-behaved. In addition, the atmosphere absorbs light at certain wavelengths. Uh, and so it, you know, the light just doesn't make it to the surface of the earth. So the atmosphere remains, you know, the critical limiting factor, I would say, uh, for ground-based telescopes, which is why you, you, you would like to go to space if you can in many cases. And it just turns out that the places on the earth that have the best atmospheric conditions are areas uh, typically which are on volcanic islands, uh, in the in the oceans, or they are on coastal mountain ranges where the airflow has been passing over the ocean and encounters these coastal ranges as the first obstacle after you know, long periods of travel. So the air uh, in in these places tends to be very smooth and it, it and it flows in a laminar manner, and it does it it does less mischief from a distortion point of view of light coming through the atmosphere. Um, and then the second thing you want to do is to get as high as you can, or at least in as dry a place as you can, because it's the moisture, it's the water in, in the atmosphere, the water vapor in the atmosphere that does a lot of the absorbing of light, uh, at, at, particularly in the infrared. Uh, and so what you'd like is a dark site. Obviously, if you have an optical telescope, you don't want a lot of light pollution. You want a dry site, and you want a site that's got very smooth, uh, and well-behaved atmosphere, and that drives you to these to these locations, these 
coastal mountains, like Mount Wilson here in Pasadena, for example, is one. If it, if it wasn't for the light pollution from Los Angeles, you know, it would still be an excellent site for telescopes. But um, it turns out that the, the Andes Mountains is an excellent location. The air is very smooth there, and it's very dry there. And uh, places like Mauna Kea and uh, at uh, La Palma and the Canary Islands and so on um, also have very favorable atmospheric conditions. So those sites are very precious. Uh, there's no question about about that. And but the cool thing is Chile is very uh, also very uh, uh, friendly to astronomy as an industry, right? I mean, I remember going to NIF last year and I think I saw a booth. I did see a booth where everybody was saying, come to Chile, you know, rent our skies, <laughs> you know. Uh, they're really promoting that aspect of their uh, geography. So I just, so as a country and politically, are they they're pretty friendly to what you're doing up there? Um, our experience is that the, the Chileans are very proud of the fact that they are the hosts of uh, such a large fraction of the world's uh, astronomy infrastructure. I think in, in the next uh, couple of decades, I think probably three quarters of the astronomical infrastructure will be in Chile. Uh, so there, there are a large and growing number of major observatories um, in Chile. I think this is something they consider to be very important um, to their identity and to their to their um, economy, and uh, they've been very supportive of astronomy in Chile. You know, I have I have a question for you. We were talking about adaptive optics and the atmospheric issues that it can correct, but I'm surprised that you don't have more, you know, local environmental issues at this focal length or, you know, at this resolution that become a challenge that adaptive optics can't help with, or even equipment issues. I mean, is the tracking so perfect that you know, we your your primary concern still ends up becoming the atmosphere on a four million pound telescope. I mean, how is what is this tracking? Is it direct drive? Is it gear driven? How does this thing work? Um, well, the telescope um, is a it, it's an alt azimuth telescope, so it has an azimuth uh, degree of freedom and elevation degree of freedom, and it floats on uh, hydrostatic. Uh, oil bearing, so it's very low friction. The drive system is a direct drive for the telescope. And yes, the tracking uh, requirements are very precise, but um, that is really not a limiting factor. Remember, we have, um, you know, we, we have as, essentially an active optical system with the GMT. And so we can, you know, we can control the mirrors as well as the, as the telescope drive to work as a unified system to track objects, some things that we can steer at very high bandwidth, you know, we can, we can't steer something that weighs, you know, thirteen hundred tons at very high bandwidth, but you can, um, you can make fine corrections with, uh, with optics and so on to keep things uh, on track. So uh, when it comes to the ultimate performance of the telescope, if you're trying to achieve diffraction limited imaging, if you're trying to take advantage of the, the sharpness uh, of an image from a, a large telescope, then the atmospheric distortion really remains. A, a formidable factor. Another factor, which is is more in line with what you're describing as a local effect, is is the wind uh, blows into the observatory and and, and excites the vibration uh, of the telescope. We call that wind shake, and the wind shake upsets the alignment of the telescope and can upset the tracking and so on. So we have to design not only with this adaptive optics technology for the distortion of the atmosphere, but we have to designed to be able to correct for the uh, the vibration that is induced by the 
just the, the, the wind blowing on the telescope. Do you know what the, uh, the focal length off the top of your head ends up being for this telescope? Um, well, I can give you the, uh, the final focal ratio is about F8. So it's, um, it's got a long, you know, you take the, the, the aperture of 25 meters and with an F8 uh, focal ratio, you have a very long focal length. In fact, this turned out to be a challenge in making the mirrors for GMT. The mirror lab had only ever made mirrors for single mirror telescopes, and so the, the mirrors themselves were axisymmetric. But for our telescope, six of the mirrors are off-axis, and so they're you know they're not they're they're not so easy to make. They they have a potato chip potato chip type of shape. Part of the challenge in in manufacturing the mirrors is that you need to be able to measure what the surface of the glass is as you're polishing on it, you generate what's called a hit map, which tells you where you need to rub on the glass some more to bring it into the correct shape. And because the focal length of the telescope is so long, um, the, the mirror lab had to put a, a fold mirror up on the ceiling, you know, up in the upper part of the, of the mirror lab where they, where they do the polishing and then reflect the light back down to make this measurement. So they had to fold the, the optical beam just to measure the surface of the mirror uh, as part of the polishing process. They had wanted to build an extension on top of the mirror lab, but that would have broken into the floor of the Wildcat Club at the football stadium. And that was not permitted. <laughs> <laughs> there are limits, right? I mean, that was not permitted. Yeah. Come on, you astronomers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I'd imagine everything becomes more challenging. Like, even so, this is an alt azimuth scope, which means you're going to be doing derotation at the sensor as it's moving. But how do you like how do you flat calibrate this thing well, let's, being so large? Let's, let's talk a bit about the derotation, right? So because you're not on an equatorial telescope mount, uh, the image rotates um, when you're tracking something on a on a an alt azimuth type of mount. So we do image uh, derotation uh, by rotating a six by nine meter uh, cylindrical assembly where all of our science instruments or most of our science instruments are attached and our acquisition guiding and tracking system is attached to the cylinder. So we actually have a three degree of freedom telescope mount. There's the azimuth axis, there's the elevation axis. And then at the heart of the telescope where the science instruments are located, we have this six by nine meter cylinder that we have to very precisely rotate to, to derotate the image motion. So that's done not instrument by instrument, but that's done at a at a higher level of some of the whole thing rotates. Now what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? So you know, another another interesting well, you're, you guys are you're telescope people, so you might find this interesting, but you know, most telescopes are are uh, are a uh, like a, a Richie Cassegrain. Richard Creighton Cassegrain design, optical design. In our case, we have an aplanatic Gregorian optical design. And uh, that does a number of things for us. One of the things it does for us is uh, that there's a real focus that occurs in front of the secondary mirror. So between the primary and the secondary mirror, there's a real focus in this optical uh, design. And so we can place objects, calibration objects and uh, pinhole sources and so on 
at this real focus, and we can use that to assist with calibration of instruments and our adaptive optic system, our wavefront system. Uh, so that's one of the, um, the interesting advantages of choosing this type of optical design. Yeah, that is. Well, we're running uh, close on time. I promised I wouldn't keep you longer than an hour, but I got to ask you one more question because this is something that I am starting to wonder about. I've been reading a lot about this in the news and every ground-based astronomer or team that works on ground-based astronomy, I like to ask this question to us. I'd like to get your thoughts on the following. I don't know if you've heard, maybe you have, but Elon Musk and the SpaceX Corporation have been launching a lot of Starlink internet satellites into orbit, into low Earth orbit. And they've they've got permission to launch 12,000. I think they just launched 60 more uh, last week. And the goal is to have up to 42,000 satellites in low Earth orbit. Now, already, professional astronomers from various organizations have shown us their images where these satellites have basically like 19 or uh, 18 different satellite trails have gone through an image that they've spent several hours collecting. Are you guys at all worried about any of this? Do you do you talk about it much? Um, what are your what's the thoughts among the people that you work with about all of these satellites in low Earth orbit and the fate of our night sky. Yeah, this is this is an interesting question. Uh, it's definitely a concern. You know, the American Astronomical Society has got um, a group that is studying this issue um, and trying to understand what it means. So, you know, you can well imagine that it it would very much depend upon what kind of a measurement you're making, whether you would be affected by large, you know, swarms of satellites in low Earth orbit. Uh, but it is a concern. So I, I think that the community doesn't yet really understand what the implications of this might be and um, what the methods might be to you know, either avoid a satellite if you know that it's coming or remove its signature from a measurement. So I think this is still very much an area that, that is being assessed. Uh, but it is a concern when you have yeah. that many objects that... Uh, that, uh, that are in the night sky. Well, at first I wasn't worried about it too much. I thought, well, if they put any reflected coatings on the uh, satellites, maybe it won't be so bad. And, and uh, But I, some former colleagues of mine at the Dark Energy Survey were using DCAM to image uh, a, a section of the sky, and they showed me this image that was just filled with satellite trails. And, of course, this was also pretty near after they were launched and were still trying to deploy to their final positions. But nonetheless, the image was ruined, and it was a several-hour uh, exposure. So this is expensive. You know, people expend a lot of money on time for these telescopes, and to have this as an issue, I just wondered if uh, astronomers were concerned at all about it. But uh, who knows? Well, I guess we just need more study. Yeah, I think we'll learn more as um, you know, as the scientists assess um, what this means uh, to the d different measurements. It's it's probably not only just in the optical. And infrared as well, because these satellites were going to, are going to be broadcasting at radio frequencies to communicate with the, with the Earth. So, so if you have a radio telescope, you're probably also concerned, but from a slightly different perspective. Yeah, let's talk about noise. So, yeah. Okay, well, I guess it'll be interesting times ahead. We'll see. So, all right. Well, Dustin, do you have anything more that you'd like to ask? No, no, it's fascinating. Thank you for joining us today, James. Well, it's been my pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. Our guest today was uh, James Fanson. He's the project manager of the Giant Magellan Telescope being built right now in Chile and hopes to see first light sometime late next in the decade, somewhere around 2028 or so. Uh, James, good luck. I hope uh, you might consider coming back and giving us an update at some point uh, as, the, as the project progresses and see how things are going. 
Um, it's been a pleasure to be with you, and I'd be happy to come back um, at any time you'd like. Wonderful. Okay, well, thank you so much. And again, on behalf of my co-host, Dustin Gibson, thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.